Welcome to Anything Goes, the best geek and pop culture show broadcast in Long Island, New York. I'm your host, Timothy Rooney, and we're back with a brand new episode, and just in time for Thanksgiving. And I know I don't usually do holiday-specific episodes, but I felt like with 2020 being as dour of a year it is, I feel like we need as much holiday joy as possible. So I decided to uh, contribute to that and hope to spread some joy uh, when it comes to the kickoff of the holidays starting with Thanksgiving. And the movie we're talking about today, The Iron Giant, has kind of become a de facto Thanksgiving movie thanks to the broadcasting of the movie over the past 21 years at this point. Now, in order to cover a beloved animated movie, I need somebody who is... One of the go-to people I, I ask and speak to when it comes to animation and animation history specifically. And who's been on a guest of this show many times. And he's one of the co-hosts of Disorder, Mr. Michael Lyons. How you doing, Michael? Hey, Tim. How are you? Good to be back. And great to talk about The Iron Giant. And uh, I love that, uh, first off, I love that this movie has become so beloved through the years. But I also love that it's become a Thanksgiving movie. A uh, nice fall setting of the movie in Maine, so I think that's uh, really appropriate for this time of year. Right. I, I mean, like, it could only be more Americana and more Maine if there was a Stephen King character running around in the <laughs> <Right>. story. <laughs> right, exactly. I, I mean, like, you, like, theoretically, Christine could be bombing around somewhere in the storyline, and we just don't know it. That is true. I'd, I'd love to see what the Iron Giant could do to Pennywise. Oh geez, that would have been that would have been something to behold there. <laughs> but like I said, we're talking about the Iron Giant, so let's jump into our review of it right now. Now, Michael, what is your personal history with the Iron Giant? Well, I um, I have a lot of fond memories of this movie, and I was really very fortunate when this movie was released in the summer of 99, because at that time, I was working as a freelance writer and a freelance journalist for several different magazines, and one of them was uh, an animation magazine uh, that unfortunately isn't around anymore. But um, I remember the editor of the magazine uh, calling me up and saying, hey, I have an assignment for you. How'd you like to cover this movie uh, called The Iron Giant? And honestly, at that point, I hadn't heard anything about it. Or if I had, it had been a brief mention somewhere because this is kind of pre-social media and pre-even the internet really taking off the way that it did. Uh, but the editor told me what it was about and um, also said uh, they're going to have an early screening of this movie in New York City at the time I was living in uh, Long Island, where you live now, Tim. And um, the editor said, there's going to be a screening of this in uh, in New York City. Um, you know, I'd like you to go. And then um, once you see the movie, after that, we'll set up a phone interview with the director, Brad Bird. So my um, 
animation geek ears perked <laughs> up when uh, the editor said you get to interview Brad Bird because I knew his name from at the time The Simpsons and um, he had done a um, a show called Family Dog and uh, an animated uh, sitcom called Family Dog which was very short lived but it was actually an animated episode of Steven Spielberg's show Amazing Stories which was on in the in the 80s and um, so I I immediately jumped at the chance to do this and I got to go see uh, Iron Giant probably a month or a month and a half before it was released. So it was really early. It wasn't um, it was in its full finished form. It wasn't in a rough cut format or anything. And I remember Warner Brothers had it at a very small screening room in uh, Manhattan. And it was on a weeknight. So there were no families there. There were just members of the press, just all adult members of the press and film critics um, and I remember sitting down in the theater and even with this adult audience there, the audience laughed at the perfect moments, at the right moments um, at the end of the movie. And we'll probably get into this. You could hear some sniffles coming uh, from from the audience as they were getting emotional. And then I remember as we were all getting out, uh, we had to kind of funnel into this small hallway in the lobby and all of the conversation among uh, the critics was how surprised they were at how much they loved this movie. And I, I was surprised myself. The movie just absolutely and utterly blindsided me at, at how much I loved it because I wasn't even expecting it because it wasn't even on my radar or anybody else's radar at the time. And then probably a week or two later, I got to um, get on the phone with Brad Bird and interview him. And uh, at the time that I was writing and I got to, I was very fortunate where I got to interview a lot of um, directors of animated films and animators and art directors um, of that time in the nineties, Brad Bird is definitely in my top 10 of interviews because he just loved filmmaking. He loved storytelling. He loved animation and he loved talking about it. And you could hear that all of that came through. He was your dream interview as a writer. When, you ask somebody a question, obviously you're hoping for more than a yes or no or brief answer. And he would just have the best answers. And he, you know, would talk, he talked about his career and uh, analogies he had and inspirations he had for other films. So that was actually very um, inspirational for me to hear that. Um, and then I wrote on the film and I remember telling everybody about it, but I was kind of disappointed because um, I almost felt like at the time Warner Brothers didn't know what to do with the movie. Um, and it opened, you know, in mid to late summer, like in early August of 99. And it got kind of trampled by all the big summer movies that were out that year. And it just kind of disappeared. And um, I can remember anyone that I told about it, they were interested, but nobody went to see it. And then that Christmas of, of 99, my cousin um, bought, the VHS, because I guess Warner Brothers brought it out on VHS for that Christmas of 99 to try and recoup any money from this movie that they could. Um, and I remember my cousin bought it for his his uh, daughter, and it, it came in the old clamshell VHS pack, and it had a little Iron Giant action figure shrink-wrapped to the front of it. And um, he said, yeah, we're going to watch it this week. And he wound up watching it, and he called me, and he was like, you know, you're right. That movie was amazing. And I'm like, see, I told you. And I feel like 
in the 21 years since Iron Giant has been released, anytime somebody says, I saw the Iron Giant, it was amazing. I feel like saying, oh, I told you, and I may not have even told them, but I feel like saying, I told you, because it's been really great to see this movie um, really connect with audiences since its initial release. It, it's really gotten the, the praise that it deserves, and it's been really great to see everything that's happened to Brad Bird's career, too, and everything that happened to him with... Um, Pixar because of this, and then of course the live action films, because uh, he's really uh, really deserved it as well. So um, a lot of fond memories of this film, and um, uh, I always love looking back on it and talking about it. So I'm excited to do that tonight. Yeah, and when you told me you would interview Brad Bird, uh, a filmmaker that I um, highly regard, and somebody that I look up to, and somebody I just like, I like study his movies like I, i've gone out of way to purchase every movie he's made like i even know even tomorrowland which i know people have like kind of mixed feelings for it. even i do but i feel like the craft of there is so well done um i'm like wow okay i need to watch all of his movies and pick them apart piece by piece and when you, and then you sent me you you actually found your old uh, interview you took screenshots and sent them to me and like you're right even through the article of you using his quotes through it like you can tell the enthusiasm is there and if you watch any interview with him or listen to any podcast he's on the spark has never left him he's always trying to be the most creative and entertaining storyteller out there and i find something that to be really really remarkable yeah absolutely and and what i love is they often have him as a guest on turner classic movies um like ben mankowitz will have him on the host for tcm and he'll talk about you know some of these quote-unquote older movies but you know you can't you can't pick a better person um to talk about filmmaking than him because he loves it so much and not only does he does he love it and that comes across in his movies and you're right even you know even what many consider to be not his strongest efforts still have that feeling of like just the love of craft and storytelling um but he appreciates what other people do as well which is really nice he definitely does and like the two things are that like one it, it, it's like I guess it like it maybe hurt fans even more that he was offered to do Force Awakens before J.J. Abrams. Right, that's right. Yeah, and he turned it down because like Hollywood's all about momentum, and they they were already in the midst of pre-production of Tomorrowland. And they felt like if we shelved this to do a Star Wars movie, he may never get it back again. Uh, yeah. so that's why he went forward with Tomorrowland, which. Some people say he made the right decision. Some people say, like, why would you do that? Yada, yada, yada. That's your personal preference. And two, I actually, like, Ben Mankowitz hosted a TCM podcast going through the life of Peter Bogdanovich. Mm. Yeah, and it's, like, it's interviews with him and, like, recounts of his life um, from childhood up until now. And it was so strange because I'm so used to being Ben Mankowitz, the best person who's ever, who can, he's the best person to read a teleprompter the world i think that's what how his twitter <laughs> profile is and like at one point he swears in the middle of the conversation with bogdanovich and i was like i was clutched by pearls so i'm like ben you can't swear like <laughs> right. you're that's like robert osborne swear you don't you just don't expect that to happen um 
Anyway, and it's funny that you say like the screening that you went to, the early screening was at a one like screening like theater and like kind of like out of the way. I think that kind of sums up the entire marketing of the movie in a nutshell for the Iron Giants. Yeah, you know, and and I said Warner Brothers just didn't know what to do with this and and you kind of get that feeling I kind of got that feeling at the time too because um even after watching it like I remember walking out of the theater that night saying why are they releasing this in the summer like you know this this isn't your standard big summer blockbuster and the fact that it takes place in the fall like I'm surprised they didn't just hold it off to like October early November like before the holidays where it would have had a little room on its own and really could have captured an audience but um I think a big part of it too is uh, the studio may not have known what to make of this film because at a time when, you know, animation and really for that matter, a lot of filmmaking was very um, alike and very by the numbers, especially animation at that time. There was a formula, um, you know, we were just coming out of the whole musical phase at Disney um, in, in 99 and, and coming into movies like Tarzan. Um, but uh, Iron Giant bucked all of those, all those formulas, all those trends, everything you'd expect from animation, which is very much a Brad Bird thing uh, to do. Um, but I think with that, the studio just kind of looked at the movie, and this is just a supposition on my part, and thought, we don't know who this is for. Like, we don't know if this is a kid's film. We don't know, like, are they going for adults? Because there's some pretty, you know, there's not only some heavy themes in this movie, but there's also some some more adult humor i guess you could say uh, not nothing nothing you know that i think parents would be embarrassed about but i think things parents would get a real chuckle uh, over and i think with that warner brothers just didn't quite know what to make of this film so they just thought well we'll put it in late summer and hope for the best yeah and, and like there's a great documentary on the iron giant blu-ray called the giant's dream mm. um which is like a Part history of Brad Bird's life up until the making of this movie and just the making of the movie itself because it illustrates both Brad's attitude towards how animation was when he came into the business after mm. being trained by the nine old men yeah. at Disney um, and him bucking the uh, trends and the, I guess the term we would use, the gatekeepers at Disney. Yep. Um, and then like how he would go on, like how he, he tried to get a spirit movie, uh, an animated movie made with the blessing of Will Eisner, which you can find that teaser on the internet if you want to. And how like, A, he doubled down. like, no, we should earn our, not, not earn, but like be self-assured of the PG rating of the Iron Giant. Like he says like, oh, like. Disney's got their G rating, and like, no, we should fully intend to make this a PG movie. And B, after the test screenings that they gotten, Warner Bros. was like, okay, can we delay this movie from seven months to a year so we can get, build a proper marketing campaign? And Bird has gone on record saying, no, you've had two and a half years. We're going to put this out in the summer. Mm. Interesting. Which he, yeah, and he, which he admits, like, that might have been a little braggadocious on his behalf. 
Yeah, which, I mean, I get his perspective on that in that a good movie is a good movie, right? And, and you know, what, whatever time you bring it out, um, you know, it, it should it should connect with audiences. I think sometimes uh, circumstances beyond your control um, kind of line up against you. Um, and, you know, it depends on what you open against. It depends on what opened the weekend before or the weekend after that you can, can kind of steamrollered at the box office yeah like it, it was like brad bird was saying like oh like the marketing people didn't know what to do with the movie didn't know how to sell it and then they cuts it's a great edit in the documentary that it cuts to a tv spot the iron giant and it's like welcome to like the heaviest metal story coming from <laughs> Warner brothers and like rock news is playing as the iron giant's doing all the silly stuff like you have to explain, I got Tonka truck to come flying out of the screen. Like that's a, the, the, it's like that fake commercial in the first Toy Story. Where we were trying to sell Buzz Lightyear action figures. Like, <laughs> right. This is totally inconsistent with this movie. Yeah, and I, you know, I think that's just, um, you know, that that goes back to the, the studio just didn't know what to to do with this film. I think it's very it's very similar in many ways to uh, what. Uh, Disney faced with Nightmare Before Christmas in 93. You know, they were just trying to figure out this audience and figure out how to market it, and Warner Brothers was going through the the same thing here. And both movies have had kind of a similar trajectory through the years in that they've thankfully uh, found their audience. Yeah, thankfully. And, uh, and it's one of those things that, like, I think it's the lesson that all film... I guess executives or just filmmakers need to learn or not need to learn, but just something to remember that the studio system is built on the opening weekend. Right. And how much buzz and how much revenue you can generate in the opening weekend. It's like a rat race for three days specifically. However, how many movies that have gone on to become classics bombed at the box office only to be rediscovered years later. Now executive a, who is beholden to a shareholders at, uh, and quarterly earnings is not worried about a movie that's going to make its uh, impact 10 years later. Right, right. Yeah, that that doesn't exactly help sell a movie, right? Boy, this is going to be a big hit 20 years from now. Right. And, and like, I imagine, like, if that's the rationale that certain executives say to the money people, you'll wonder why there's a high turnover rate at studio systems. <laughs> right, yeah. Um, but like, no, you think of movies like John Carpenter's The Thing, or, uh, I mean, like, well, I'm trying to think of this, there's probably a million ones I could think of, but well, they're not I, coming I, to me at point. Yeah, I mean, th this time of year, I always go back to It's a Wonderful Life, you know? Um, I mean, the, the movie did well, it was nominated for Best Picture when it came out, but then kind of forgotten for years, and now, you know, considered one of the greatest films of all time, and not a holiday season goes by where we don't watch it. Right. Um, or even like, um, I'm going to come back to it's Wonderful Life in a moment, but you think of, all right, Snow White the Seven Dwarfs was a monster hit for Disney, but then the subsequent movies afterwards, up until like Dumbo, were kind of flops. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a big part of that was the war because he lost the overseas market. But um, yeah, Fantasia in particular um, was a huge. Uh, disappointment for Walt and almost turned him off animation completely. 
Yeah, not even the pecs of Wolfer Jackson could have brought in the uh, <laughs> right. uh, the the money uh, earnings for that movie. And if Wilford Jackson can't help sell your movie, come on. Yeah, I, I, exactly. And we all know where they got the design for the Iron Giant in this movie. It's obviously modeled after Wilford Jackson. Oh, obviously. Of course. <laughs> um, and going back to my It's a Wonderful Life uh, point, Wonderful Life is synonymous with being a Christmas movie. However, it's not until the third act that it becomes about the holiday. Yeah. In my heart of hearts, I, I find a hard time sometimes it's staying with me that it's a holiday movie. Yes, it involves Christmas and Christmas redemption, but people say, oh, it's a wonderful life, it's a Christmas movie, and some people say Die Hard's not a Christmas movie, and I'm like, well, a wonderful life, a third of it is a Christmas movie. I don't know if you can quantify the whole movie as a Christmas movie. Right, right, yeah. And I mean, not to get off on a, a tangent, but I know there's been the whole Die Hard is, isn't for years, and I just kind of feel like if a movie takes place at Christmas time and you enjoy watching it, at Christmas time, then it's a Christmas movie. I mean, you know, a lot of people watch Batman Returns, uh, and they call it a Christmas movie. They watch it in December, and they call it a Christmas movie, which that really takes place during Christmas. Um, so I think, you know, It's a Wonderful Life, in many ways, set the standard for that, where it's a movie that takes place at Christmas time. It has a very Christmas feel in the third act, to your point, but it just wound up getting played so much in the month of December that people have just called it a Christmas movie. You know, that's a pretty good way of looking at it. And it's so funny that uh, It's a Wonderful Life uh, kept coming up in my timeline recently because Brad Bird kept posting uh, stills <laughs> of uh, It's a Wonderful Life uh, on Twitter uh, during a certain uh, election cycle that we just had right there. <laughs> <laughs> it pretty much was the... It was the... Uh, it was the journey of emotions that a lot of people felt around in this country, and I was yeah, like, "Okay, sure. that's yeah. fair." <laughs> um, but the story of the Iron Giant started as a book called "The Iron Man" uh, two years before the song was written by Black Sabbath. Um, no, <laughs> like the the book uh, "The Iron Man" was written by poet Ted Hughes, and it was meant uh, for his children uh, to comfort them in the wake of their. Uh, Mother Sylvia Plath's suicide, mm. and during the 1980s, it was acquired uh, by the Who's guitarist Pete Townsend, who wanted to adapt the book into a concept album. And it would have been called the Iron, Iron the Iron Man, a musical, and it eventually was ended up back at uh, Warner Brothers uh, uh, to be adapted into an animated movie. Now, at the time, while this was going on. Uh, Brad Bird had was shown the door at Disney. Yep. Um, and like you mentioned before, he had made a big splash with uh, the Amazing Stories uh, uh, episode. It's the, the Family Dog. That's what it's called. Family Dog. Yeah. And then, of course, became pretty much a legend because of his consulting on The Simpsons. Mm-hmm. Which, like, even to this day, you can find his a PDF of his breakdown of storyboarding of animation um, using people from the Simpsons and King of the Hill. And it's like, and sure it's meant for animation, but you can apply it to all forms of filmmaking. And I will, I'd be lying if I said I haven't gone back and look at it when I'm doing a shot list or something like, okay, 
how can I add depth into a shot here by just staging characters differently or putting the camera in a certain place? And at the time Iron Giant was getting kicked around uh, as an anime movie with Warner Brothers, this is when the Disney Renaissance had been kicked off uh, because of the successes of Little Mermaid, Aladdin, Beauty and the Beast, and so on. While all the other companies want to have their Disney movies because, like, hey, animation's hot. We, and what's Hollywood but if not just chasing a trend? <laughs> and so while working on a story called Ray Gun, which I think is just a great title for a film noir science fiction story, I'm like, oh, that's just perfect t- yeah, titling. Yeah. Um, and, like, Apparently, that still may come to pass eventually, so fingers crossed on that. Oh, that's cool. Yeah, he was he was a um, brought in to see if he had an, a take on the Iron Giant. And he had the idea of, like, okay, what if a gun doesn't want to be a gun? Something that was, that was designed to kill but chooses not to kill anymore or not to kill again. And uh, Warner Brothers is like, okay, we'll go with that. And so they were given the production budget was around $50 million, which sounds a lot because it is a lot. However, the chief competitor, Disney, uh, who put out Tarzan a couple months before The Iron Giant, spent around $130 million budget-wise for that movie. Yeah. Yeah. Um, they were they had uh, They had an uphill battle uh, in terms of... Uh, revenue making this film but you'd never know it you'd never know it if watching the film i mean um they put every penny they had up on the screen right i mean like the last thing you want to hear from the filmmakers like you finished watching a movie and it's like huh something was a little off there and then the filmmakers is like yeah we couldn't afford to do that right right like like the audiences will just won't accept that so you gotta make gotta be as creative as possible and they had like a short uh, production time because animation takes a long time especially feature animation like between I think they had like eight months before from writing the idea to start animating it mm. so which is not a lot of time to break a story cast it and do the recording of all the voice actors yeah and they, they got a pretty big cast for this movie too um, I think I think looking back on it and I was thinking about this just watching it again during the during the week for this episode um you know, Jennifer Aniston's the voice of uh, Hogarth's mom in the movie, and she was on Friends at the time, and Friends was produced by Warner Brothers, so she was probably under contract. So it makes me wonder if, you know, to kind of make it a little bit quicker and easier, they kind of went to a lot of Warner Brothers contract folks who had movies at the studio at the time and just pulled them in to be a part of the project. Yeah, like, uh, during the doc- the aforementioned Giant Stream documentary, like, Brad Bear is saying, like, oh, Warner Bros., they wanted the typical people. They wanted Brad Pitt for Dean. And uh, for uh, Kent Mansley, they wanted Arnold Schwarzenegger. Oh, jeez. <laughs> uh, which, I, like, part of my mind is just thinking about, like, <laughs> uh, Ken Madsley, I work for the government. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, like you would half expect Ken Madsley to go uh, uh, fisticuffs with the Iron Giant halfway through the movie. Yeah, I know. I would have liked to have heard his dialogue session. I don't know if I'd want to see him as Kent Mansley, but I would have loved to have heard his recordings of his session. 
<laughs> it, it, it took a bite out of my car. <laughs> a whole chunk of it. Uh, but but it would it would have a different connotation when he said launch the missile at the end of the movie. <laughs> right, right. Like the have to scream get to the chopper at that point. Um <laughs> But you, speaking of Jennifer Anderson, that was one of the people that the studio wanted, and casting her gave the rest of the it gave the suits at the studio a little more confidence in the project. So he was allowed to cast the people who he thought was appropriate for the roles after that. No, oh, very good. Yeah, because Harry Connick Jr., who was I don't want to say like the big deal, but like him starring in movies from like Independence Day up until like early 2000s like Harry Connick Jr. was a I don't want to say bankable star but a star to recognize in projects oh yeah definitely he made some uh you know if, if like you said not big films he was making a good number of films at this time yeah right and then you have a uh, young uh Eli Marenthal as Hogarth Hughes who just brings so much life and energy to the role um and then we have Vin Diesel uh, making uh, not his debut, but like his first foray into a monosyllabic uh, animated character in the live action movie or a movie, <laughs> I should say. Yeah, saying more than one one sentence in in Iron Giant, so he says more here than he does as Groot. So. I, I mean, like it, like compared to Groot, like he's like he's like Hamlet in this movie, right? right? Yeah. <laughs> And there's great behind-the-scenes footage on the documentary of him. Like, he's got, like, food on a plate to imitate him, like, when he's eating all the metal during the movie. So he's got, like, this Big Mac in front of him he's just, like, munching into. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. And, like, because Digi's always a star, so he's recording in the sound booth with sunglasses on. And I'm like, that does not surprise me. <laughs> but I think the underrated... Uh, Christopher uh, McDonald as Kent Mansley. Uh, most people know him as Shooter McGavin from Happy Gilmore. Yeah, that's right. I was excited that he was cast in this role because I think, um, you know, I think his being cast as Mansley is like the complete opposite of stunt casting. You know, to your point, they could have gone with a big name like Arnold Schwarzenegger uh, for this uh, for this role. But the fact that they went for, you know, a character actor who's got like a really solid voice who brings a really great comedic performance. Um, and he's, he's got that voice where when you're watching the movie and you listen to him, if you don't know who he is and then you go on IMDB, you're like, Oh yeah, I know that actor. Um, so I, you know, I, I, I think it was really, really great that he was, he was cast in this role. It truly is. And I'd be lying how many times I've not just quoted the lines in his fashion, like get Mansley work for the government (laughs) and just the smooth, like legato style of, of how he delivers his lines. And also earlier on when his, uh, government issue car has been, um, munched into when he gets into the car, he's like "Eh, a bunch of people in this, uh, like one horse town. Oh my God. (laughs) And realizing half his car is missing. Yes. Um, or even later on when he's explaining to his superiors what happened and there's the silly uh, oven mint making faces at him and he has to turn around because he seems ridiculous being judged by an oven mint. Yeah, that was great. Uh, but of course, his superior played by the person you just spoke about on Real Fans Real Movie, 
uh, podcast with the Thanksgiving special with uh, John Mahoney. Yep, yeah, another uh, another popular character actor of uh, of the time uh, for sure. Who, um, I, you know, I don't know if Frasier was a Warner Brothers show, but you know, I, I I kind of look for those connections as to what would have brought him into the movie. But um, you know, a, a great voice. I think we were so familiar with him from Frasier, but you know, a great voice, especially for a military character in this movie yeah and, and like i um i'm trying to remember i i'm trying to remember the name of the movie off the top of my head whenever i think from i think of obviously from fraser but also he was in ed burns second movie after the brothers mcmullen uh what the heck was the name of that um oh gosh um it's gonna it'll wake one of us in the middle of the night. Yes, it will, yeah. <laughs> um, I know, I'm sure so, so many people listening are just screaming at their phones right now for it, but he right. plays Ed Byrne's father in that, and as a huh, stretch, as a retired uh, FDNY uh, uh, member, and it's him, and I forget the other actor's name, who plays his brother, who was the Geico um, sa- uh, That's right. salesman <laughs> for a while. Like, yeah. like, can Geico really save you 15% or more on car insurance? <laughs> Is too tall, Jones, too tall. <laughs> and like the, he and Ed Burns have such a contentious relationship as brothers, and John Mahoney kind of stirs the pot a little bit between the two of them. Um, and he, like you said, just brings such a... I don't want to say gravitas, but he brings, I guess, so much character to an animated role that, like, oh, there's so much authenticity there. Yeah, he, he also provided a voice a year prior to this in the DreamWorks movie Ants, A-N-T-Z, that uh, is most famous for um, getting Woody Allen to be the main voice of the character in that movie and for beating uh, Bugs Life to the screen. Uh, But John Mahoney was a voice in that. and He had had pretty much just a cameo in that, but um, he did a great job in that as well. Yeah, it wasn't Ants Jeffrey Katzenberg sticking it to Disney for when he left the company. Well, yeah, I think you know he was trying to one up them in a certain sense, and uh, I think they kind of uh, pushed pushed Ants through as quickly as they could because I think Ants wound up coming out like around early October of '98 and uh, beat Bugs Life by about a little over a month to theaters. And which one has stood the test of time? Exactly. Yeah, because I could almost feel everybody listening to that when I said ants going, oh, yeah, ants. But if you say Bugs Life, everyone's like, oh, yeah, Bugs Life. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's Pixar's Seven Samurai. Like, that's how, or Magnificent yeah. Seven. That's exactly um, what it is. <laughs> I, I just remember the name of that Ed Burns movie. She's the one. She's the one. Thank I was, you. I was trying. I was thinking, is it She's All That? I'm like, no, that's that's another movie. It's She's the one. Yeah. Yeah. Like, I, I almost say like, She's Got to Have It. I'm like, no, that's Spike Lee's <laughs> right, first movie. Yeah. But I'm like, no, it's Indie New York Cinema. But like, we're close, but we're no cigar. <laughs> so thank you for solving uh, that riddle for me so I don't have to go to bed in the fits just trying to uh, clawing at the walls trying to figure that out. We can sleep tonight. and so the movie opens up um with a great indicator that we're in the middle of the cold war with sputnik one rotating the earth while a weird comet seems to be jettisoning towards the earth 
and ends up landing outside of Rockwell, Maine. Obviously, Rockwell uh, named that the Norman Rockwell because of how Rockwell-esque this town's going to be, where a a sailor, or I guess a fisherman, is in the middle of a hurricane trying to get back to the mainland and thinks he's uh, spotted the lighthouse, but suddenly the lighthouse has two uh, two uh, light sources. Like, oh no, that's a giant being in the middle of the water. Comes crashing into it and can't believe he just saw a giant Iron Man in the middle of the ocean. As well as Hogarth Hughes, who is the energetic nine-year-old there who... Likes to get into trouble by trying to keep, uh, what is it, squirrels as, uh, <laughs> as pets and causing havoc for his, uh, waitress mother who works at the local diner. Yeah, a, a great, uh, great opening scene really pulls you into the movie, uh, and the setting and the time and place. Um, not only, you know, is it announced on the screen and we see Sputnik going around the earth, but, um, you know, just a, a really interesting take on, um, you know, it's not a huge action scene at the beginning of the movie. Um, it's not a big musical production number because this isn't a musical. Um, but still, it's a scene that grabs our attention very quickly with the fishermen out in the uh, out in the ocean and seeing, yeah, like you said, seeing the Iron Giant and the two eyes he thinks to the lighthouse. Um, and then we're immediately taken into the town. And we get to meet Hogarth and we get to meet his mom, Annie. We get to see the town. We get to see that it's fall. Um, so very efficient um, storytelling. And very quickly, too, we learn about Hogarth through what you're just saying, the fact that, you know, he has a pet squirrel and his mother's like, oh, what did you bring home this time? So you see he has this interest in, in bringing things home and, you know, uh, forming attachments to you know, uh, creatures outside of the house. So that's going to kind of uh, call into play with his relationship with the Iron Giant later on. So, yeah, just once again, you know, it, it doesn't surprise us now because of Brad Bird, but just really solid storytelling. Right. There's so much set up to be paid off later, even if it's just a kind of character moments here. And it's so curious here, like um, how we established, obviously, that, um, Annie is a single mom raising um, Hogarth, and we have the resident beatnik played by uh, Dean, played by Harry Connick Jr., who says he found uh, Hogarth's uh, pet squirrel because it's bur- it's burrowed itself up his pants leg, resulting <laughs> him have to apologizing to the pages of the diner here, but had to unzip his pants in order for the squirrel to get out, causing. <laughs> Lots of havoc around. Yeah, and that that was like one of the moments I remember where there was surprised laughter in the theater because, um, you know, it's a very almost risque type of joke. Seems tame by today's standards, but back then it seemed risque to have a character in an animated movie, you know, even though it's not on camera, like unzip his fly and the squirrel comes out and starts running through the, the diner. And, and even the very matter-of-fact way where he's like, ladies and gentlemen, I'd like to apologize for this. <laughs> and he unzips <laughs> his fly. Um, but, uh, yeah, just I, that kind of that kind of sets up the, the, the very um, offbeat, uh, kind of off-kilter humor at times that this movie has. Yeah, and, and like, and, like, it goes back to like you said before about, like, the the 
humor being a little more risque, but it's not lurid in any fashion. There's no, like, obscene poop jokes, like, oh, we gotta keep the kids interested kind of thing. But it's one of those things that, like, oh, parents will get that joke more than the kids, but um, but it's not, it doesn't leave kids out because uh, uh, furry animals creating havoc wherever they go just gets a laugh out of most people, especially kids. Um, Especially you see all the plates and uh, cups of uh, food and drinks going flying everywhere. And there was a great, like, video that I, I sent you called um, Playful Cinema, the Brad Bird story by uh, Royal Ocean um, Film Society on YouTube saying it's a very Chuck Jones joke, like, okay, we're going to punctuate a joke with a pan. And, like, yeah, we don't – we see Dean from behind and we don't see him actually unzip his pants. So it's like we hear the unzip and we tilt down to see the squirrel coming out of his pants. That's where yeah. the joke comes from because like you could have done it in a more risque manner but they don't. Um and you're right, the fact that Hogarth is looking for some kind of companionship by bringing home pets to fill the void because the fact that he doesn't have a paternal figure in his life. Yeah. No, that's 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 a great point and um uh that that I think is another kind of recurring theme in the film this whole idea of you know the the father figure. Um, and, you know, as we get into it, we'll see there's actually kind of three different um, father figures for, for Hogarth in, in the movie. Um, and, you know, Brad Bird had said when the movie came out that it's an interesting dynamic between Hogarth and the giant in that Hogarth is almost like the father and the giant is the child. Um, and then you've got Kent who is kind of like, one version of a surrogate father, and then you've got Dean, who's another version of a surrogate father as well. Right, and if this movie was made in the 1950s, Ket Mansley would be the atypical hero and the, the traditional head of the household, while the beatnik would be the the one with the jazz cigarettes and the one who cannot be trusted and... Like it would just be like almost like a riff on Reefer Madness somehow. Like oh, like they're they're the loose cannon in the town there, but since it's, it's May of the nineties, the, the kind of characterization is flipped a little. Yeah, no, that, that's a that's a great point. I think you know, um, I think the standard storytelling would have definitely had Kent as more of the hero, um, and Dean as as the villain. You know, and um, they they kind of flipped that where the you know the government agent who you would think is going to be the good guy is not. You know, and this kind of uh, uh, this, you know, beatnik who's kind of on the fringe of society winds up, you know, being the father figure and being the good guy. Right. I mean, like to the point where <laughs> Ket Mansley almost becomes diabolical near the third act of the movie. <laughs> yeah, he does. Um, especially when it comes to chloroforming children. Yes. Um, <laughs> which I'm going to put a pin in that. But. We're introduced to Hogarth being a fan of science fiction by staying up, eating junk food, watching a science fiction marathon. And I always love this little detail here where people can get to make their own fake movies within a movie. Yes. And it's always arch. And like it's over it's usually over the top compared to what the things they really enjoyed as children. Like, oh, it's it's like a it's a killer brain movie he's watching. It's like and of course the very staccato dialogue of the actors like ah, a perfectly good brain gone to waste let's get out of here 
I know that's great. That's really great. And obviously made by somebody who loves movies too. Definitely. And apparently like the Twinkie with the um what was it he he puts all oh the, the um It's like whipped cream, right? That he the can of whipped cream that he sprays into the Twinkie. Right. Which apparently Brad Bird did as a child. Like that's like he would do that as a like as a ultimate like junk food snack. And like he had Eli eat a couple of those while doing the recording of this, and it's like after like three, he's like, "All right, I I don't, I can't do this anymore. This is just too much." <laughs> Where it was like on the commentary, they're like, "Yeah, we nearly sent Eli into a diabetic shock after that." <laughs> well, I mean, the whipped cream into the Twinkie is brilliant, but you know, it it is something that's better taken in small doses, I think. Right. I mean, like Twinkies, like like they they're. The eating of too many Twinkies got people off the not guilty uh, verdicts from juries in the past before, okay? So I, I guess using moderation is the way to go. Um, but his, his marathon is interrupted because the antenna is all messed up because something has taken a piece of the antenna and has gone off into the woods. So Hogarth arms himself and heads out into the woods to find out what's going on, where he reaches the power plant and it seems like, huh, I guess... I guess it was just my imagination. However, he's introduced to the giant um, who is drawn to the power plant like a light, a, a fly to a fly buzzer or a mm. light buzzer, and so and begins to eat part of the power station. However, he starts getting zapped by the power lines, and resulting in Hogarth needing to shut down the power of the entire town in order to save the giants. Yeah, and. Um... We, we see here also uh, Hogarth's, um, you know, sympathy and empathy because the giant's in pain, right? The giant's kind of trapped in the power lines and being electrocuted. And Hogarth at first is like, I'm just getting the heck out of here. And then he turns around and goes back and um, shuts off the, the power. He flips the switch and turns off uh, the power. So it's a nice kind of character moment for him, too. Yeah, like it, because it, it's so easy, he could have just ran away and just like, yeah, mom, I have no idea what was going on out in the woods. But no, the fact that he stays and this thing that could possibly kill him, he goes out of his way to save. It says a lot about him. Uh, and I love how since he's a nine-year-old child, turning off a giant, like cartoonishly sized switch, he yes. actually has to like use his entire body weight in order to turn it off. Yeah. But like, I don't know how the whole town does not hear the giant scream out in pain in the distance (laughs) i did like how convenient it was that at the power station there was a giant switch that said on and off and you could just switch it down i thought that was very very easy (laughs) right it it totally is a plot convenience thing like wow it's it's, i mean how many times does homer get out of jams at the power at the nuclear power plant by accidentally hitting the right button to prevent a meltdown right right um, and so he saves the giant and gets out of there, but the giant is able to wake up and takes notice of Hogarth as he leaves, as he's um, reprimanded by his mother in the middle of the woods, who's worried out of her mind by him. And I, I just love how this animation look because the at this point, it's just being lit by the headlights of her pickup truck. Yeah. And... Just the shading on her like, to make it look like it's actually in silhouette is just a really nice touch. 
Yeah, and you can see from, I think, scenes like that that um, Brad Bird was definitely one of these animators that could exist in, I'm sorry, one of these directors, rather, that could exist in the animated world or the live-action world, because there's a lot of scenes in this movie that um, the, you know, the framing of the shot, the lighting of the shot is very much, even though an animated world, it's very much similar to a live-action movie. Right. I, I mean, like, this is one of the first, like, not the first, but one of the first times I took notice of the fact that it's, um, it was, it's in CinemaScope. It's in widescreen. It's not in the traditional, like, 185 traditional mm. rectangle. Like, oh, no. It's, like, prior to this, like, you had, what, like, Sleeping Beauty and, like, maybe Atlantis that were, like, the big ones to utilize that format? Yeah, probably uh, Atlantis was a couple years after this, I think. But um, Black Cauldron had probably been uh, the last one prior to this that was in like the big widescreen uh, 70 millimeter. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And I, when we bring up the Nine Old Men, well, what we mean by that is for those who may not be uh, aware of it, that Disney's Nine Old Men was the the core team, the core animators at Disney during the Golden Age. And Brad Bird was trained by, I think it was Milt, uh, Milt Call. Yeah, Milt Call and uh, Frank Thomas and Ollie Johnston were uh, very influential uh, on his career. Yeah, who make appearances in his animated movies, this one and in The Incredibles. Um, we'll point them out in a little bit. And during that documentary I keep referencing to where Milt Call was very tough but very fair with Brad... This thing, like, he, Brad, like, I think it was the, um, I, I'm pretty sure, like, it was saying, like, he would get a scene, like, ask Brad to do a scene and, like, show it to, Mel's like, all right, it's terrible, but, like, this year doing a little bit better and just be a kind of, I, I guess the way would just say, like, always driving for always bettering yourself, always continue, like, all right, continue to get better and better, like, never rest on your laurels, because you can always get better going further and further with yourself. Yeah, and I, I could see that, because um, uh, Milt Kahl was very much known for being uh, the best draftsman uh, among Disney's Nine Old Men, so, like, they said, you know, he could design a character and move a character around um, like no one else could, and, and move, you know, even the the character with the most unique shape, he just had a way of moving that character around on the, the screen. He had, I mean, one of, one of his famous examples is that he did Shere Khan, the tiger in 67's The Jungle Book. Um, and, you know, he animated almost every frame of that character uh, by himself. So it's no wonder that he would kind of push anyone he was training to do better in their work as well. And which I think the work has stood the test of time oh yeah oh absolutely and um yeah there's i mean there's animators today um, you know even working in uh computers that go back and at the disney animation research library they study milt Kyle's work yeah I, i'm pretty sure um I, there was one of those books that I, i'm pretty sure you recommended to me there is a book on the disney night old men um yeah, like yeah yeah, John Kanemaker, uh, who's an animation historian and a writer, wrote a really great book on Disney Nine Old Men. I think it came out in 2001, um, and it takes you through each one of them and 
their lives and their art and career and everything. Yeah, like I have that like in my Amazon list like that and then there's also a guide to storytelling by Pixar. Like mm-hmm. like how they tell stories and everything and like that's one of the things I'm probably gonna that's probably going on the Christmas list this year. Um but with all the ruckus going on, uh the weird things and all the weird machines that are seem to be kind of torn apart, they the fisherman calls the government to report all the strange things that happens, and so they set a representative, uh, Kit Mansley, uh, to investigate what was going on out there, and he is the typical straight, uh, straight-laced uh, government official, but to the point that he is seemingly paranoid of that the the USSR is coming to take over the United States. Yes, yeah, yeah. And and interesting that when he gets first gets to Rockwell, he's very much above it all. Um, and I hadn't noticed that until watching it this time where, you know, this is almost like a, an annoyance uh, being there in this small town. Uh, and he even, he even says something to one of the, like one of the, um, like construction workers or someone who, or one of the, I guess one of the, the, uh, the workers from the power company that take him to the, the power plant. And he even makes a comment like, well, Rockwell is a town where nothing happens. I come from Washington, DC where everything happens, you know, but, um, his tune changes when he realizes that this is really where something is happening. Right. Like it, it, it... Asia Mulder, he is not. No, it's not. No. Um, and so, yeah, resulting in his car disappearing, um, being eaten by the Giants uh, yes. in, hilarious, in hilarious fashion. <laughs> but, but at the same time, Hogarth goes out to the woods with a piece of metal in order to lure him out there along with his camera and try and get a picture of the Giant. However, ends up befriending the Giant after it comes back and Show and bringing the switch that saved the giant's life, and this is when the connection begins between Hogarth and the giant. Where Hogarth tries to teach him how to speak, um, he notices there's a weird bump on the giant's head that's kind of an indentation in his forehead or mm-hmm. his temple, and teaches him rock tree, and says, "All right, you got to stay. I got to go home to get." To have dinner and everything, but in true puppy dog fashion, the giant follows him home. Yeah, very much like a, um, almost like a Frankenstein's monster type of scene where you've got this creature who really doesn't know how imposing and, in a certain sense, deadly that he is, but has this sense of innocence uh, about him and. Just really nice, quiet character moment between the two of them. And there's some great personality animation uh, going on uh, between them. And the, the giant was um, computer animated for its, for its time. It was computer animated. And, and when they made it, they made it to look. They animated a computer, but made it, made it to look 2D. Um, but for a, a creature that's pretty much expressionless, through the movie, they get a lot of expression out of him. Yeah, and like in the article that you share with me, like Brad Bird said that CG animation can be quite clinical and sterile. 
Yeah. And so they need to intentionally put imperfections to blend the CG elements with the 2D animation. Yeah, and that, I think that was definitely true in the 90s, too, because if you think about a lot of the big CG moments in in movies, particularly in, in Disney movies, um, you really know when you watch it now. I mean, I think when we were seeing them in the theaters back in the 90s, we were so wowed by it. Uh, but when you watch it now, you can tell what's CG and what's not. Um, and I, you know, I think they, they really made an effort here to just make the, the giant blend in. And he does really well. Right. I mean, it's not like, I think like one of the worst examples is like, you have the special editions of the Star Wars movies where suddenly these CG characters are trying, that are now chroma keyed into the 70s footage. You're like, oh, one of these things is not like the other. Right. And it kind of yeah. sticks out like a sore thumb. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I, I think you can see that. And, you know, I, I think it's because, you know, the computer technology wasn't, you know, it, it wasn't as refined as it is now. So um, it just, it made everything look a lot, you know, just like Brad Bird said, it made everything look perfect. Right. And it's so curious because, Brad Bird's never been afraid of technology. Mm. Um, like he's always willing to push it, especially like in the Incredibles movies or Ratatouille, where he'll bring traditional, like he'll bring kind of new techniques to CG animation. But at his core, he's a traditional storyteller. Like it's the idea of like okay, traditional storytelling with today's technology to make a blend of it to have a strong foundation for the audience to latch onto but tell it in a unique fashion. Yeah. I, you know, I, I think he's, you know, he's from that school and, and rightfully so of um, the story is the most important thing. Um, and there was a, there was a Hollywood executive, not even a, an executive, like a studio head during the, the, the studio days of like the, the forties and fifties. And um, he said, if, if a story stinks on the page, it's not going to smell much better by the time it gets to the screen. Um, and I think Brad Bird knows that. And, and he knows that no matter how good your technology is, without a story that audiences are going to connect with, it's it's not going to matter. Right. And, and that reminds me to two things. Like One, like the very first book on screenwriting I ever bought was screenplay by Sid Field. And the very first page is like, if it ain't on the page, it ain't on the stage. Right, right. Yeah. And then there was a college professor I had, the name of Alan Bernstein, or like the first broadcasting class I took uh, at Suffolk County Community College here on Long Island. And it was the my final project that was not that good. Then I was able to go back and redo it again. And he's, because he says, like, you can't shine up a turd. <laughs> and he was right. And so, <laughs> like, it very put, profound. Yeah. Right, and like he was very direct in that fashion, and I'm so glad for that. Um, and that's the Iron Giant here. Like, yeah, he could be quite imposing and violent because there's this one moment where he he suddenly squats down to be closer to Hogarth's uh, height, and but he's still 50 feet tall, and he's gigantic. And like that weird squat he gives, and then he slowly falls back on his his back end. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. I, I, I've said that that still of him just kind of squatting, looking down at Hogarth. This is like, 
as somebody who's tall, I'm like, how I talk to short people, I'll, I'll send that photo with them. I know it's very mean, but like, it usually, usually gets a chuckle out of people. Um, but in the process of following Hogarth home, he ends up taking a bite out of the train tracks that's near his home, but there's an oncoming train. Hogarth tells the giant to put everything back, put it back. And so he tries to put it back, but who knew the giant was kind of a perfectionist when putting <laughs> things back together, resulting in him getting clobbered by the oncoming train. Yeah, I love that scene of the, the giant pro- trying to line up the track just perfectly. He's got one eye closed. Um, I think that's hysterical. Well, like, you, like half expect him to break out like a, a ruler and a protractor to make <laughs> sure everything is properly done. <laughs> and you think the giant's dead. However, we're in, this is the setup of him. He's able to, unlike Johnny Five, he's able to reassemble himself here. Yeah, that's right. Um, but this is where we get the Ollie Johnson and um, what was it? Uh, Frank Thomas. Frank Thomas. Why? I always forget his name. Ollie Thomas always sticks with me. Frank Thomas never sticks with me. Yeah, they have their cameos as a fireman and as an engineer here at the scene when Kit Mansley is uh, responding to the scene. Yeah, and Frank and, and Ollie did their own voices, too. Did the voices of the two characters as well. Yeah, and, and they also will have a cameo in The Incredibles uh, near yeah. the end of that movie. Yep. Um, and I still need to see the documentary you've recommended several times. Oh, about, about the, the two of them. Yeah, Frank, Frank and Ollie is the name of the documentary. So yeah, it's but <clears throat> that's that's really a great uh, a great documentary. It gives you a new appreciation for the classic Disney films. Yeah, and so in almost a sitcom fashion, um, Hogarth has to hide the slowly reassembling giant away from his mom during the middle of dinner because he hides the giant in the, the barn. However, his hand is missing. <laughs> that That's still bobbing around somewhere and it ends up in the house and Hogarth has to distract his mother and long enough for her to not notice there's a giant mechanical hand walking through there like it's a gigantic version of Adam Sandler's The Thing. <laughs> And uh, I love how he does that during uh, during dinner when his mom asks him to say grace. Um, and, you know, he's bowing his head down and all of a sudden he sees the hand walking through the kitchen. He sees it over his mom's shoulder that his mom has her, her back to it. And it looks like a giant spider going through the, the kitchen. And, and Hogarth is about to pray and he goes, oh, God. And he's like, oh, God, please help us. Watch over. <laughs> and he's like he's and he's trying to signal the hand and he, his pitch is going up and down yeah. with 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 the, the blessing yes his, that's right and his mother is looking at him like he's got eight heads at that point because it's like this is the wildest grace that i ever had before a meal <laughs> yeah that's a great scene and it's only compounded by the fact that uh kip mansley shows up and he's like hey sport kip mansley work for the government and starts <laughs> poking his nose around while there's a alien robot hand um, roaming the house. And again, this is the scene too, where um, uh, Kit winds up coming into the house at one point and Hogarth is upstairs in the bathroom trying to push 
the hand out of the window and the door's locked and he's making all these grunting sounds and Kit and Annie, Hogarth's mom, are standing outside the door and they're hearing Hogarth grunt inside and Kit says, this is why it's really important to really chew your food. (laughs) (laughs) The incredulous look that Annie gives him after that statement is worth the price of admission. (laughs) However, once he pushes the hand out of the second story window, it comes collapsing down on the ground outside, making a huge bang, resulting in Annie pushing in the door. However, Hogarth thinks fast and sits down in the toilet after pulling down his pants, like, Mom, well, have a little privacy. Now, yeah. up until this point, this movie's been very realistic with its animation. Nothing's too rubbery. Nothing seems too exaggerated. However, when Annie closes the door on Kit Manley's head in the doorway... It does turn into a Looney Tunes cartoon for a second, seeing his hand, his face gets so schmushed right there. It is like chef's kiss right there. Um, thankfully, um, the giant reassembles himself, and they're like, okay, we got to find you a new place because this is just too dangerous, and the fact that he's also hungry, he needs to feast on metal, but like, where does that metal go? Why does he killing machine need a digestive tract we don't know (laughs) something's got i assume that's what's powering him um all along therefore hogarth brings um the giant to dean's uh junkyard and tries to convince dean like hey this is a cool robot and i'm fine don't worry i'm not too weird and you have more espresso that you've just given me and now you've have a hopped-up child in your house. <laughs> right. That's a great scene. And, and apparently, like, Brad Bird says, like, he'll try and animate at least one scene per movie by himself. Like, he'll he'll choose one scene to do. Like, okay. So he's in the trenches with the rest of the animators. He chose this scene when Hogarth is running a mile a minute uh, verbally because he's had too much espresso. Oh, that's great. And he regretted it because like oh my god there's so much there's so much talking there's so much i have to so much lip movements i have to deal with and just him being kind of like erratic because he's on a sugar high yeah yeah i didn't even think of that there is a lot going on here right and eventually dean realizes that uh the giant's eating his junkyard and hogarth tries to convince him that he's a good person um with Dean just walking away and going back into his house, but like a nice good editing joke when it just cuts to black and it says 37 minutes later and Hogarth is still complaining outside <laughs> yeah. of Dean's door. That's that's another great thing about this movie in, in that like some of the jokes, um, they're not, they're not, it's not physical humor. It's not a one-liner. It's, there's, there's not a punchline. It's just in the timing of the scene and the timing of the lines. And this is one example of that, of, yeah, just like you said, like Hogarth kind of hinting at, you know, like, um, uh, I think Dean says, well, where, where is he going to stay? And Hogarth is like, just looks at him and, uh, you know, starts hinting at the fact that he could stay in the junkyard. And Dean just gets up and walks into the house and slammed to black 37 minutes later and him begging in front of the door. It's just funny in the way that they put that all together. You know, there's nothing kind of 
nothing that's said that's funny. There's no sight gag that's funny. It's just the way that, that it's all assembled is just really funny. Yeah, and, and like, but it's also punctuated with he stands up, he lets the, his espresso just pour out of his coffee cup, turns <laughs> yes. around without noticing, and just walks away. Yes. yes. <laughs> <laughs> Because he's now has taken in that their aliens do exist. They come in giant metal um, compartments, and right. who wants to eat his scrapyard? And while this is all going on, Kit Mansley's trying to get information out of Hogarth, who he believes knows more about the weird occurrences that was going around at Rockwell, which I guess is the only like real childish humor joke where. Hogarth gets the he's able to give the slip to uh Mansley by putting laxatives in his <laughs> ice cream. Yes. That's right. And again, you know, that's like having a joke like that where like a you know almost like bordering on the Farrelly brothers type of humor where you've got a character who's in this like intestinal distress because he's had the laxatives sprinkled over his uh ice cream Sunday and has to constantly find a restroom. Even the way Manly is talking to Hogarth and you hear his stomach gurgle and he's like, I'll be right back. And he runs into the restroom. Like it's not offensive humor. It's not um, inappropriate humor, but it's not the kind of humor that you're used to finding in an animated movie. You know, it's a, it's a little bit edgier if you think about it. Right. I mean, it's not as like, I guess as overt as Jeff Goblin walking up to a giant pile of manure and saying, well, that's one big pile of shit. <laughs> um, it's not that. Um, no, it's not that. And it's not, <laughs> it's not South Park, Bigger, Longer, Uncut, which was oh, the same God. summer as this movie. Uh, but it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, again, it's one of those, like, surprised laugh moments where, you know, it, it's, it's still a very innocent joke and it's still very innocently staged and played out. Um, but um, you're kind of surprised to find it in this movie. Yeah, and apparently, according to the commentary track that Brad Bird and animators did, like the sound design team had a lot of fun coming up with the perfect noise for Mansley's <laughs> stomach there. It's like it's a belch mixed with a bunch of other stuff in there to create the perfect, like, oh, disgusting sound for that moment. It's <laughs> great. Um, so... Hogarth gives him the slip, so he, Dean, and the giant decide to go to the local watering hole um, and have fun. And Hogarth, like, uh, what was it, like, makes a, jumps into the lake and everything seems fine. And the giant walks away and says, like, well, you're just a big weenie. Then you hear, zoom, 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 as the giant leaps like 100 feet in the air. And cannonballs into the lake, resulting in a typhoon hitting Dean in the face and sending him hundreds of feet away from the lake. <laughs> sending him into the middle of the road. Um, and, and then all the water kind of dissipates and he's soaking wet in his, um, you know, in his beach chair in the middle of the road. And I, th this, this, I think, is, again, another one of these jokes that's just it's funny the way it plays out where the guy in the truck comes up and leans out and says to Dean, like, hey, and he goes, yeah, you know, you're in the middle of the road. Yeah. And the driver goes, all right. And just drives off. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's like the perfect one two punch. One is when like the waves about to hit him and he just sheepishly puts 
his newspaper proposes <laughs> in the hopes that would somehow save him. <laughs> and then, of course, the, like you mentioned, the, the his reaction to the drivers is like, um, you know, you're sitting in the middle of the road. Um, and then we get to one of the most important scenes of the movie later on, where it's Hogarth and the giant walking through the woods, and when they come across a deer. Now, this is gonna this is initially very different. Um, in the writing process, because in the movie, as we know, they come across a deer that is killed by hunters. Now, originally in the script, they come across the deer, and the giant goes to take a hold of it and accidentally smushes it. Mm. Because they needed the giant to figure out the concept of life and death. Yeah. But the animators and the writer, like, argue with Brad's like you can't have him kill the deer you can't have him come back from that yeah yeah no I think that I think that was a good call honestly uh still a very effective scene very effective scene um you know and I, I think I I a lot of times think some of the most powerful moments in animation is where there's not a lot of animation that's going on um and this is definitely one of those scenes either when the giant first meets the deer when it's still alive and he's kind of putting his finger out to the deer. And then, you know, after the hunters have shot the deer, um, you know, and, and Hogarth realizes what happens and he's like, Oh no. And then, you know, the, the giant goes to pick up the deer's body and Hogarth is yelling at him saying, you can't do that. Um, just still a very impactful scene, but I, I agree with you. I think they went the right way with it, the way it's in the film. Yeah. And like it's, it's more resonant once you know Brad Bird's story because his sister, one of his sisters, died because of the result of gun violence. Oh wow! Really? Yeah, and it's something that's brought up in the documentary. Like, I believe it was her husband that was the reason why she was killed because of gun violence, and. I think it's why he was so passionate about doing this movie about why, how he pitched to the Warner brothers, like a gun, not wanting to be a gun mm. with, um, with the giants of what his, um, motorcycle ride is supposed to be. And then how he chooses to be something else. And the idea of free will versus destiny and the idea of existentialism, which the giant starts to think about later that night after the, the deer is dead, he's laying in, in the junkyard contemplating like will like he asked Hogarth will you die will I die and it's kind of he heavy subject matter that you wouldn't expect from an animated movie at that time yeah no I mean definitely and I I think you know um, this this year that Iron Giant came out was what many people consider the the end of the animation renaissance period not just at disney but at all the studios and in television animation it started with the little mermaid which at this point was 10 years prior um you know and i think at this point animation was taking was was starting to take a lot of chances um i think it would be a couple of years later before we really saw that pick up again um but you know this this year alone in animation not only saw iron giant but saw south park bigger longer on cut it saw tarzan and then later in the year it had toy story 2 
which were all movies in one way or another, um, played with the formula of animation and also took chances. And, you know, I think of all of them, Iron Giant um, probably took a lot of the biggest leaps in terms of, you know, just what it was saying in its story and, and um, in the messages. It, it definitely is like, and from a, a thematic standpoint. And it's because I guess we could jump a little bit ahead here, but like this was not a box office success. It made a, like a little over $30 million at the box office and it went on to become a, a cult film. This paired with the preceding years, Warner Brothers released the, Obviously, the greatest animated movie to come out of the 90s, Quest for Camelot. Oh, gosh, yeah. Wow. Where was that anniversary Blu-ray or DVD? I think we missed uh, that. <laughs> I think it's... it Like, those printed Blu-rays and DVDs were probably used as coasters somewhere. <laughs> poor, poor Quest for Camelot. <laughs> I know. It's the easy joke to make. I, I get that. But, like, you think of, like, the movies at the time. Like, okay, you think of South Park, bigger, longer, and uncut. Animation-wise, it's not too different from the TV show. Right. Like, it's pretty much, it's a little bit bigger budget, but it's nothing too outrageous. Um, Toy Story 2, it's, like, yeah, you pushed a little bit of technology-wise compared to the first Toy Story. It looks a little bit better, but still very similar with the first Toy Story, even though it does have a a heartbreaking five-minute montage complete with Sarah McLaughlin's song. Yeah. Um which, like, I'm hearing that in the back of my head right now, and I'm kind of soldier through right now so I don't start crying. <laughs> uh, but you're right. The Iron Giant is the one who's endured to be the one that's took the most chances there, especially with your main characters contemplating your own life and existence and what's going to happen afterwards after you pass away. You don't see that in most animated movies. No. No, not at all. Not at all. And, yeah, I mean, and a young boy teaching that to what's supposed to be an adult um and having that knowledge and and imparting it to another character is pretty significant really is and in the like there's an extended cut on the blu-ray where there is a scene where after this conversation they had the giant goes to sleep and he has a nightmare of his origin a little bit and it's being filtered through the TVs in, in the nearby area, and Dean wakes up and who had fallen asleep in his uh, Lazy Boy, and sees a glimpse of what the Iron Giant's true intentions are and where he's what he's supposed to be doing. Um, which I guess kind of leads a little bit more to his reaction later on when Iron Giant almost hurts, or I should say, kills Hogarth later on. Mm. But in the meantime. Mansley has found evidence that the giant's real thanks to a picture that Hogarth accidentally took of the giant and decides to interrogate him like he's a communist sympathizer in the 1950s. Yes, yeah. And it's downright terrifying with just like, uh, the one single key light and him grilling him. He, like Mansley is properly scary for children at this time. Yeah, no, definitely. Um... But I love how, like, in, on the commentary track, they were like, they really had to walk a fine line here so it wouldn't, like, Mansley be too creepy when he acts, he does chloroform a children at the end of this interrogation. 
Yeah, and I I love the way they cut from that scene where he puts the chloroform over um, Hogarth's uh, nose and mouth, and then the world gets all kind of you know blurry, um, and they show these weird shapes floating into focus, and the shapes turned out to be this very 1950s looking wallpaper, and it kind of settles as the wallpaper, and then comes into the next scene of Hogarth in bed. Just I think that's really really creative and yeah kind of shocking to see a character chloroform uh, a little boy in a movie like this but the way they do it and it's so quick um and they don't kind of linger on it it um it makes it a little more palatable i think right and the fact that mansley is the villain and he would do something kind of dastardly like that i think it's why they're able to get away with it yep um and then this results to a kind of a stand up between the two of them who's can stay awake long enough um and see if like so the mansley sits on the bed in his room eyeing hogarth who puts on his uh um fighter helmet and goggles included and seems that hogarth goes to sleep and mansley's able to stay awake all night however hogarth was able to give the slip and is able to warn the giant because at this point the army has come in to investigate the claims that Mansley has made. They go to the junkyard and they just find a the giant. However, he's just part of a big art installation that uh, Dean's been making this entire time. <laughs> That's right. And I just love the Mansley being chewed out by the general outside of uh, Dean's uh, junker right there. Like I have so, I get so much joy out of that. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, I think I like so many people, I, I get to listen to John Mahoney uh, yell at people. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Great voice. It's kind of like listening to whether it be Arlie, Ermy or JK Simmons, like, like 50% why I love whiplash is just how well JK Simmons is at yelling people. Oh yeah. So true. Um, and so the army leaves thinking they've just been on the wild goose chase and embarrassed and spent how much money getting army, uh, people to this little town in Maine. But at the same time, this is when the giant and Hogarth decide to play, uh, a, play a game where Hogarth is shooting his little, like, I guess, like, I don't know, spring loaded ray gun at uh, the giant However, the Giants' uh, weapon systems uh, automatically react and try and kill Hogarth uh, to defend himself. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, that's a shocking moment. Yeah, and like how Dean realizes it and saves Hogarth from being vaporized by the yeah, Giants. Yeah, yeah. And like... It's it's really shocking, like cause you don't expect, like oh wow, the a really harsh turn right there, but it's almost justified with like because they show the result of what the uh, the giant shot in Hogarth, and literally is just like a radiated hole in a in a bus. Yeah, yeah, and they kind of they set it up really well during the scene with the with the deer too, because the giant sees the hunters run off, and the giant sees one of the hunters' guns. And his eyes turn red for a split second. He kind of like shakes his head and shakes it off. He doesn't know what it is. Um, So they kind of set it up that, you know, the giant has something else going on 
inside of him. And then this scene hits and wow. Yeah. Yeah. And so Dean tells the giant to get the heck out of there and the giant leaves is when it starts to snow and it starts to get very moody. Um, and Hogarth runs, runs away as well. Um, but that's when Dean realizes, Oh, the giant didn't do it on purpose. He was just reacting to the gun. Um, but while the giant is going across the countryside, he noticed uh, a pair of kids in a tower noticed the giant. But and I think one of them was actually voiced by Brad Bird's son. Um, and the kid falls in the tower, but the giant notices, runs across the countryside and is able to catch the kid before he hits the ground and becomes paint. Mm-hmm. And this is when the town realizes, oh, we have a giant metal robot in our midst. Yep. And I like the fact that the the town people aren't immediately terrified of him because it's so easy just to have just to run away, uh, scared like, oh, it's a giant alien menace that's now invaded our town. Yeah, more of a more of a sense of wonder and almost you know a bit of intelligence too. Of well, if he saved this young boy, he can't be all that bad. Right, like, when it comes to animation, I, I just think of, we're back a dinosaur story when they when people in New York realize, oh, it's real dinosaurs, and everybody just runs away from the dinosaurs <laughs> in, in the streets of New York. <laughs> oh, boy, like, if you're playing at home right now, and you're, we're back at dinosaur stories was uh, said, don't worry, we got you covered. <laughs> uh, we're playing the random animated feature films from the 1990s we've got quest for camelot we're back mentioned we're looking for catstone dance next <laughs> if anybody's got it at home on their bingo car <laughs> <laughs> like if we could we could shoehorn a uh prince of egypt or balto reference in there <laughs> then right. like we're in like flint <laughs> Um, however, the townspeople are not the only people who have noticed the giants there. Mansley looks over his shoulder and notices that and tells the army to fire upon the giant. Um, so Hogarth, who had been next to the giant when he's being shot at by the military, gets uh, scooped up by the giant and then he goes running out of there. The Mansley is informed by Dean, like, hey, don't shoot at him. He's only going to react well if you just fire at him. If you don't shoot at him, he won't attack you. And Mansley takes it in, but turns to the general and says, the giants killed a child. Yeah. Super dastardly. Yep. And it is when, like, on the commentary track, they had to they had to find a way to create an action set piece where, A, the army is not the bad guys in the end because it's so easy to make the armies the, the army individuals the villains here, mm. and so they were able to do that and they successfully do that because Brad Bird said like yeah I've been approached by people in the arm, armed services saying like yeah thank you for not making the army people the bad guys and they were just doing their job here yeah um, and something that happens later on with the giant when he freaks out. But it gets to one of my favorite moments of the entire movie. And as I say this, I'm starting to get goosebumps where the giant accidentally goes off a cliff and his feet become uh, like jetpacks and he's able to fly. And I love how Hogarth's question is like, hey, you can fly? And he bellows out, you can fly. And seeing him 
seeing the giant become airborne is just one of the reasons why we go to the movies. Yeah, and I love I love Hogarth like you can fly, you can fly, and like <laughs> the the scenes of you know the scenes of the the giant um, taking off into the sky. Um, you know, even though the technology at the time is nowhere near like the flying scenes in the How to Train Your Dragon movies, they're still just as exhilarating in their own way. It, they really are. And like it's one of the shots I always think of when I think of this movie. It's an extreme long shot where all the way in the background is Annie and her pickup truck. But in front of her, we see the giant just lift up into the sky. Yeah. And it's one of the indelible images I think of this movie. However... Even while they're airborne, they're still being they are attacked by fighter jets that put the giant down roughly. And when they crash land, the giant goes to Hogarth, but he thinks Hogarth is dead. Yeah, yeah. And that's when, in his sorrow and being attacked by the army, the dent in his fo- his head is pushed back outward. And then he turns into this War of the Worlds monster that he's intended to be and decides to attack the army. Yeah, absolutely terrifying what he turns into. But the way that it's the way that he's animated is just they they walk the fine line between we need to make him scary and imposing, but we also need to make him cool, too, because they've created this really cool character. And like you said, there's those great like war of the worlds like snake like guns that come out of the top of his head and then there's something that comes out of his arm i think that's almost like a a record that spins around and this like needle goes on it when it hits it it almost turns into like a laser machine gun um they really they got very creative here with um the giant's destructive powers they really did and it's something we haven't talked about prior but like michael came in score throughout the movie oh yeah yeah. When when he goes bad here and have the music like the really hits when he's being impacted by the tank shells and he goes full heel and starts to fight back, it's truly scary. And like how do you feel about Michael Kamen's score for the movie? Yeah, I think it's a really underrated score because um you know there's there's not really and, and there probably is, I just didn't notice it, but there's not really a theme song that sticks out uh, in this. Um, like when you think of John Williams and how John Williams will create a theme. I'm sure Michael Kamen did. I just wasn't quick enough to pick up on it. But I think his score does what all scores are supposed to do. They really help support the story and support uh, the movie. But also one of those scores that the more you watch the movie, the more you appreciate it. I have to agree, and when I was getting ready to watch this for this episode, I kind of just had the Blu-ray menu just playing in the background as I got ready, like, because I watched, like, right before I went to bed, so, like, like I put my pajamas on, so I just have it just kind of playing in the background, and it has the main theme of this movie just kind of on a loop, and with some really cool animation for the menu, and it is so wonderful and so comforting. It's like, oh, it's it's heartwarming to hear that and it just it 
like I mentioned before, when we did our Die Hard with the Vengeance episode, it just makes me miss Michael Kamen even more. That I'm yeah. like, oh, the world was robbed of more music of him, by him. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And the ground troops uh, seem to can't put the giant down. The <laughs> They somehow were able to get uh, some destroyers in the harbor to try and fight the giant rather quickly. Yes, um, they did. But nothing is stopping it. So Mansley says, like, um, the bomb, which mm. we haven't brought about before, but, like, the atomic weapon was kind of set up earlier where their uh, Hogarth was watching a, I guess, like an 8-millimeter film in class talking about the bomb drills you'd have to do to get onto your desk to protect yourselves from uh, an atomic... Uh, as, the, as their film within the film film said... Atomic Holocaust. <laughs> That's right, yeah. The old duck and cover. Which obviously would protect you from fallouts and everything like that. Oh, a, a school desk? Sure. Yeah, <laughs> it, it, it sounds absurd now, but like. And it's one of like my biggest fears, like, my biggest fear is drowning. That's a that's a rational fear to have. Mm-hmm. Like um, number two is uh, nuclear war, which I know is a thing that you should not have to worry about too often. I saw the Terminator; I was far too young, so that's mm. why I fear nuclear war. Mm-hmm. And so when they use the the threat of nuclear war in this movie, I'm like, um, no, let's not do this. Hopefully, they won't do this. Yeah. But they get preparations ready. They get they set a Polaris uh, missile ready. But that's when Hogarth is was just unconscious, and he's able to run out to the giant before he pretty much irradiates a destroyer. And the giant is about to kill Hogarth, but Hogarth is able to reach the heart of the giant, and he has like his Tin Man moment here because he says like, "You are who you choose to be. Now choose." And the giant chooses. Not to be a gun. Yeah. And yeah, I'm very, like, very impactful moment. That that's that's for sure. Um, you know, and I think it. First off, that obviously the message of the film is you are who you choose to be. You know, you're not who people say you are. You're not what society, the box that society puts you into. You know, very simplistically. But, you know, I think um, also. Uh, a really amazing, you know, anti-violence message uh, from the film as well. Um, just in terms of like, you know, what is it solving, you know, being a gun? And, and like Brad Bird said, that was the whole central piece that draw him into, drew him into the movie. You know, what if there was a gun who didn't want to be a gun? Yeah, it's really it's a heartfelt thing to hang your story on. And I'm so glad they did that. And so the giant picks up Hogarth and approaches the army and the general is trying to, is caught between Dean and Mansley saying like, don't kill him. Don't do it. And the, the soldiers are just like orders, sir. Like what we're doing, you don't yeah. know what's going to happen there. Um, but the, <laughs> I love the, uh, they realize, Oh no, stand down. It's a trick. Um, and the, the the glare that the giant gives Mansley yes, is, yes. is so satisfying. Yes, yeah. However, Mansley grabs the radio from the general and says, launch the missile, which they do. 
and I love how the general says, grabs Mansley like um, the missile is trained to go where the giant is. Where is the giant, Mansley? And Mansley yeah. just looks over his shoulder like, there's a fallout shelter not too far from here. It's like, there's no way to survive that. Yeah. And this is where I'm going to try my damnness not to cry on this episode. What's going to happen next? Yeah. They, well, uh, before the more emotional scene, there is the scene where uh, doesn't the, the general say about Mansley, like he's going to sit there like a good soldier and serve his country. And this is where, again, kind of edgier humor. Mansley says, screw my country. I want to live and jumps <laughs> into the van. And I was like, I remember watching it and saying, Oh my god, a character in an animated movie from a big studio just said screw. <laughs> you know, like screw my country, jumps into the, the Jeep, right? And then the, the giant just puts his hand in the road and, and the Jeep <laughs> the Jeep crashes. And uh yeah, then we go into the scene you were just about to discuss. Yeah, and like there's something so satisfying, like the giant puts his hand down, stops the Jeep from going anywhere, and then he's surrounded by soldiers. Yeah. Like, oh that's like oh that's that's so satisfying. Yeah. Um but yeah, now uh, this scene where the bomb is approaching Rockwell and all the people are trying, they're holding each other close and they're trying to, or they'll try to run, try to find some place of, of shelter. And Hogarth explains to the giant that if the bomb comes down, it'll kill everybody. Everybody will be dead. And the giant will looks back up and looks back at Hogarth and realizes what he has to do. And he says, I go, you stay, no follow. The same thing that Hogarth had said to him earlier. And also prior to this, like, he was showing him comic books, including The Spirit, more tribute to uh, uh, Will Eisner, but also Superman comic books. And he, yep. and so the Giants always wanted to be like Superman. And of course, it's a Warner Brothers movie. Of course, they had Superman in here. Right. And the Giant says, I... You stay no follow, and he flies up into the sky. And ever since I was a kid, up until now, like I can't help but get emotional here. And then he flies up into the upper atmosphere, and he's heading towards the missile. And you have the the voiceover of Hogar saying, "You are who you choose to be." And then you have the close up of the giant as he's going headfirst into the missile, and he says, "Superman." And then. Yeah. Um, kaboom! Yeah, and there is a great piece of art that I've shared a couple times throughout the years on, on social media, where somebody drew uh, the giant holding up Superman in his hand, and it's just like Superman question uh. mark, and Superman saying, "Hey there, big guy! I, I I've been told that you're a real hero." And I'm oh like, wow! Oh geez, like why don't you just break my heart while you're <laughs> yeah. at it, artist? Yeah. And yeah, the giant sacrificed himself to save the people of Rockwell. Therefore, we cut a few a few months in the future. Dean has made a monument in the memory of the giant. Hogarth has ha and has friends, and it seems that Annie and Dean are an item now. Yes. And the only piece that they were able to find was a little like. I guess I, I don't want to say a rivet or a small screw that would go into the, the top draw of the giant and was given to Hogarth, who was still reeling over the, the loss of his friend. Mm -hmm. 
But and it was a screenwriter, uh, the screenplay uh, who co-wrote it with Brad Bird, uh, um, Tim uh, McCainleys, who says you gotta bring E.T. back in the end. And so at the very end of the movie, like we saw before, of how he's able to rebuild himself, the the piece that he was given, that Hogarth was given, is moving in the box and realizes it wants to get out of there. So he lets the piece go, and it rolls out the property, and Hogarth waves goodbye to it. And then we cut to Iceland as the giant is slowly but surely putting himself back together. Yeah. Yeah, that's really cool. He's got that that ability to kind of send out the sonar to call all of his pieces wherever they are back to him. Which, like, if you are unaware of the giant, just seeing giant metal pieces just roaming the countryside and going across the ocean, <laughs> yeah. like, might be a little disconcerting. I didn't even think about that. If you're just driving down the street and there's a giant metal screw just rolling down the street on its way to Iceland, that's got to be a little strange. <laughs> Uh, Johnny, you're not going to believe what I saw right there. I saw it looked like a giant piece of rebar <laughs> waddling it down I-95. <laughs> but yeah, so the movie ends, and uh, it's it's only I think it's because it's how well this movie was made. It's so disappointing that it wasn't a bigger hit at the time. Yeah. Yeah, I, I agree, because especially with the ending, you know, you wonder, would they have brought the Iron Giant back in some way, you know? Right, and, like, I, you just have to wonder, like, what would you, how would you, like, I'm always of the one, of the mind that, like, if the story warrants it, you can tell more stories, you can make sequels of it, but sometimes, like, one and done are, are just... If beginning, middle, end, that's fine. Like, I love the entire Star Wars saga, but my favorite is A New Hope because if there was never a sequel made, you'd have been happy with it. Yeah, Evil's no, defeated and good guys win. Yep. No, yeah, that's that's a great point. And yeah, I, you know, it, it's you get kind of torn. You know, you kind of wish the movie had been a bigger hit just so more people would have seen it when it first came out. Um, but would that have let lent itself to sequels that really didn't need to be, you know? Yeah. And, uh, I'm just trying to think with the advent of CG animation, like if this was a bigger hit, do you think traditional animation would have, kept going for a couple of years afterwards, even despite the success of Pixar, they were on that roll in going into the first part of the 21st century. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, um, computer animation was gaining such momentum. Um, and I don't know if it was gaining momentum in the right way. I think, uh, I think what happened is, um, it was just kind of a happenstance in that, in the late 90s into the early 2000s, you had movies like this, and there were several uh, Disney traditionally animated films like uh, Atlantis that underperformed, and even, um, you know, Summit DreamWorks, like The Road to El Dorado that came out in 2000 that didn't do well. And it just so happened that all of the computer animated films were the ones that did well. So 
uh, Toy Story 2, Shrek, um, you know, and, and, and so on. So from a Hollywood perspective, there was a, a thought that, well, computer animation is what audiences want. So that's why, you know, 2D animation um, was, was shuttered uh, the way that it was. And really, the, the fact was that audiences just want to see a good story, you know. Um, so I think it would have taken a lot of a lot of movies like Iron Giant being bigger hits um, for 2D animation to to continue on. I, I think I think computer animation just had the good luck to be associated with some stronger stories is what happened. And, and that's why that's why we saw that saw computer animation take off the way that it did. Yeah. And I know I'm being nostalgic. I mean, I, I did a whole episode on the future of movie theaters not too long ago. Uh huh. Um, and I'm just like, I'm a, I am a traditionalist. I realize this. Um, I mean, like I, I, I still want the, possibility of shooting on film to be a possibility going into the near future so i i I want those things to be there however i think of walt disney sometimes i think of how much of a futurist he was and if he had technology today he would be blazing trails in digital technology to tell stories as as much as can and interactivity he would have with the parks um, if he had the means today, if he was still alive today. Oh, I, I think without a doubt. I mean, there was a, an interview with his nephew, Roy E. Disney, uh, back in the 90s. And I think they asked him, like, you know, what, what do you think your uncle would say um, if he was here now or if he if he was brought back in a certain sense? And and he said, I think he'd say, wait a minute, we're, we're just doing this and this and this. There's so much more we could be doing. And I think that definitely is true of Walt. He was definitely... Uh, a futurist i think what walt was he was a storyteller at heart and if you look at his movies his television shows even in theme parks he's always telling a story so i think he definitely would have gotten the best minds in technology but it just wouldn't have been about the technology it would have been about uh story uh first and foremost right i mean i think like the <laughs> he would have realized his vision of tomorrow with Tomorrowland and like how many, how many more things he would have pushed forward uh, through with theme park attractions. Like if he had hologram technology in his day, like how much he would be able to accomplish with it theme park wise. Oh yeah. Oh, without a doubt, without a doubt. And I think, um, I think he would have also probably uh, for filmmaking and in all areas of the company, I think he would have asked, a lot of his artists to not just think about what's going on now, but what's going to happen 10, 20 years down the road. And how do we not be on the curve, but how do we get ahead of it um, is what he would have been asking them. Definitely. And uh, final thoughts on the iron giant. Yeah. So, I mean, this is um, a completely underrated film that has rightly become uh, appreciated in the 21 years um, since it uh, how, is it yeah 21 years since it came out. Um, it's such a wonderful story, uh, great characters, beautiful animation, beautiful 2D animation, um, and 
it pulls you in on every emotion. It pulls you into the adventure of this story. It pulls you into the humor of this story. It pulls you into the heart of this story, definitely. Um, and it pulls you into the message of the film as well. And it's a great message, no matter what age you are, that you you don't have to be who other people say you are. Um, you are who you choose uh, to be. And um, it if you've never seen it, um, it's definitely worth uh, a watch. Um, if you're a fan of not just animation, but of uh, movies in general, this uh, this is a, a wonderful film, animated or otherwise. So um, I can't recommend it uh, enough. I think it's definitely one of the best um, animated movies of that renaissance in the 90s. And I think it's one of the best non-Disney animated movies ever made. So I give The Iron Giant an A+. Very nice. And it is... It's sad because it seems like it was just a... Because you think of Batman Mask the Phantasm, which was meant to be for the home video market, and eventually he got bumped to be released theatrically, uh, which didn't perform well because they were they didn't know how to um, market animated movies uh, theatrically at that point at Warner Brothers. And then mm. you have Quest for Camelot, which was a disappointment, and that was a very expensive movie. And then this, which was a really great movie, but was also... S- suffered because of the fact that it didn't have a proper marketing campaign behind it. But even but Brad Bird admits like, yeah, he should have heeded the studio's warning and gave him another seven months to properly market it and get the licensing tie-ins like with Burger King and so on. Right. Um, but I think it's quite um, amazing because it was a – because you think of 2D animation movies from the beginning of the medium, like yeah, from Snow White to this, how the medium changed from just a simple princess story to a movie that questions the one's existence and free will versus destiny, something that resonates a lot with me. That's why I love The Matrix so much, because of the question of free will versus destiny and that. And I always, in my heart of hearts, I've, do believe you choose your own destiny, you choose your own path. So it's something that personally resonates with me. And the fact that I realize this thing about myself, I'm a, I'm attracted to pulp kind of stories. I'm a, I'm drawn to 50s pulpy stories or 40s. Like I'm attracted to film noir. I'm attracted to science fiction of the day. I'm also attracted to like cyberpunk and things that are futurist but kind of in a retro way. And the fact that, like, you get the best of both worlds because I love the art of Norman Rockwell and see that kind of use done here. But with a sci-fi twist with the inclusion of the Iron Giant, it's a marriage of things that I absolutely love with the philosophy that I try and live my life by. And top it all off, it's entertaining and funny. Like, I can't help but adore this movie. And it's something that's resonate with me for years and it's only just a disappointment that A, I didn't get a chance to see it in theaters and B, it wasn't successful enough to maybe warrant a sequel if it would have been appropriate to make a sequel or not. 
but I think in the long run, it's found his audience and it's led Brad Bird to continue his career with the Incredibles movies, um, Ratatouille, and his live-action movies, both Mission Impossible, Ghost Protocol, my personal favorite of the franchise, and Tomorrowland. So even though it was not a financial success at the time, it left an indelible mark on both audiences and filmmakers alike, and I'm so glad it was made. Absolutely. Here, here. Yeah. Now, if people around the world, on the social media, Michael, if they want to follow you and your musings on animation that you are doing more frequently now, where can people find you? Yeah, so I'm on Twitter at MLionsFL. Um, I have a blog, uh, Screensaver, a retro review of TV shows and movies of yesteryear, which is at screensaverblog.blogspot.com. And I'm a regular contributor for uh, a website called Animation Scoop, which is at animationscoop.com. And I have a weekly uh, column that I write for that uh, website. Uh, That website looks at animation past, so the history of animation, as well as what's going on currently uh, in the industry. Um, If you're into animation at all, um, I definitely recommend uh, that site. It's um, run and edited by a gentleman named Jerry Beck. Um, who is a, uh, a great animation historian. He's written books on um, Warner Brothers animation, ironically, that we're talking about uh, here. He's written books on Looney Tunes and uh, Bugs Bunny, so um, he's a great resource uh, and has that site out there for everyone to learn more uh, about uh, animation. And as you said, I also co-host Disorder, Every Disney Film, the podcast with um, Andy and Hunter as well. Yeah, which I absolutely adore. And your recent blog that you done not so long ago about the feel good movies that you that that you need in twenty twenty. Um, <laughs> like I got a little misty eye by the end of that article because I'm like, yep, this is the reason why we watch these movies here. And so for that, I thank you. Well, thank you. You're you're always you're always a great supporter of uh, my writing, so I always appreciate it. And um, I appreciate your kind words. And yeah, definitely um, now more than ever, I think we need those movies like The Iron Giant uh, that uh, give us a tremendous boost of positivity and a tremendous boost of hope as well. Yeah. And like like you, like I, be- I believe you had, you had mentioned Castaway in that article, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. I, I just think that um, that movie offers... Uh, you know, a great vision of hope and definitely uh, somebody the Tom Hanks character in that film who uh, gets through a pretty significant ordeal um, and learns at the end of the movie to get through each day. Like he says at the end of the film, I don't even remember the exact quote, but it's, you know, a lesson that he learned that, you know, he needs to keep breathing because the sun will come up tomorrow and who knows what the tide will bring in. And, you know, I think, that's just the theme of that movie. Yeah, and like it's, it's a, it could be a kind of a punishing movie, but I think it's 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 worth it in the end, and has one of my favorite lines ever delivered by Tom Hanks in it when he's arguing with Wilson, and he's going over his plan to get off the island, and he's just like like. It may not work, but you know what? At least I'll try and not spend the rest of my life sitting here talking to a goddamn volleyball! <laughs> and he punts it out of the cave. 
And, you know, there's nothing better than manic Tom Hanks. There really isn't. Whether it's in a movie like Castaway, whether it was years ago in Bosom Buddies or as the voice of Woody the Cowboy, um, there's nothing funnier or better than that that manic Tom Hanks. <laughs> no, not at all. And apparently somebody on YouTube, I found this a while ago, somebody did like a, a, a supercut of manic Tom Hanks, like Tom Hanks freaking out in movies. <laughs> it's like five minutes long of him just <laughs> screaming at whoever he's in the scene with. That's awesome. Yeah, and so if you want to follow me on social media and follow all the creative endeavors that I have, you can follow me on Twitter and on Instagram at this is Tim Rooney, uh, where you can where I share the links to my of uh, my short films like that are on my YouTube channel, YouTube.com/slash Through the Lens Productions, as well as the other podcasts I do for the Real Fans Network. Uh, please be one the RF 4M Retro Show. Much like Disorder, you can find Please Rewind at rf4rm.com. That's the landing page for all the Real Fans Podcast Network. And if you like this show, subscribe so you never miss an episode. Leave us a five-star rating review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Um, And I want to say thank you again, Michael, for taking time out of your evening to talk the Iron Giant with me. Oh, absolutely. Thank you for having me on. I always uh, love being on a podcast with you it's always a lot of fun to to talk over the intricacies of film and i really enjoyed this so thank you again and uh happy and a safe thanksgiving to you and to everyone else out there uh ditto everybody please be safe please be smart for this thanksgiving so we can have uh many ha- uh, thankful and uh prosperous thanksgivings going forward so please be smart this year um, come back next time as we continue to talk about geek and pop culture, and we'll be speaking to you soon. You are what you choose to be. Speak.